I had every intention uh, of finishing the chapter this week, uh, but while preparing uh, the message and I was heading toward my 14th page of notes, I thought to myself, and and we were doing communion, I thought, this isn't going to work. And so uh, I know last week I told you that I hoped to finish off the chapter, but um, that's not going to happen. So uh, we're going to do two more. We'll have this one and then one more. We'll finish chapter 26 finally. Uh, hopefully it's not been too difficult for you uh, as we've been going through uh, the word of the, uh, of the Lord and just being blessed uh, through the gospel account of Matthew. And so uh, today we're going to be covering verses 57 through, uh, 57 through 68 of Matthew chapter 26. And so uh, if you have your Bible with you, you start making your way uh, there, uh, Matthew 26. Uh, if you forgot your Bible uh, or, or simply just don't have one, a number of the chairs have Bibles uh, available underneath them uh, for you. Uh, feel free to use one of them and follow along. Obviously, we do think it's important to follow along in His Word. Today, you're going to cover, um, as I mentioned, verses 57 through 68 in a title, uh, in a message I've entitled Jesus' Trials, uh, and looking at uh, Jesus' trial before uh, Annas, which isn't mentioned in Matthew, but also the trial before the Sanhedrin. And so uh, that's what we have on tap for today. All right. Will you please stand in honor of God's word as we read this morning's text? Again, we are in Matthew chapter 26, covering verses 57 through 68. Matthew 26, verse 57, it reads, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priest, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. And then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one who struck you? Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we do ask for your blessings just to continue to be upon us as we gather in this place. Lord, we pray for your leading and guiding of your spirit through your word. Lord, we do uh, ask for uh, just a special uh, uh, time, a, a special word for each and every person here. Lord, I know we're all in different places in life. Uh, you have us, uh, going through different trials, different difficulties, different uh, triumphs, Lord, wherever we may be, Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak to each of us. 
And Lord, I pray that you not only do that here in this church, but all the other churches and, and in the chapel that's meeting this morning. Lord, we pray that a, a mighty move of your spirit would fall upon the, this community in Iwakuni. Lord, we look forward to hearing from you when we come with an expectation that you're going to speak to us. And so, Lord, open up our hearts, open up our, our ears and our mind that we might receive all that you intend. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Last week, we covered the betrayal of Judas as he came with a detachment of troops to seize Jesus and hand him over to the religious leaders and the religious authorities. Uh, And we noted how Judas, even though he was one of the 12 disciples that spent nearly three years of Jesus's uh, at Jesus's side, he was willing to churn uh, uh, upon Jesus he was willing uh, not only to, to, to churn upon him, but to uh, sell him, basically, for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, he would sell out uh, Jesus Christ. And, and we recall as well that he approached Jesus and he portrayed him with a kiss, um, uh, which was the sign that Judas had decided to use to help identify Jesus to the troops as the one to seize. And also last week we looked at Peter briefly, uh, and, and we will as well continue to learn from his life from today's portion as well as next week's portion. Peter was the disciple that pulled out the sword and chopped part of Malchus's ear off when the soldiers came forward to take Jesus. Jesus had to tell Peter to, to put the sword away, and he had to clean up the mess that Peter made uh, by healing Malchus's ear. And ultimately, we noticed last week that all that was happening, all that that was taking place, it was all part of God's plan of redemption. Uh, All that was taking place had been foretold by the prophets, and Jesus was there to fulfill the word of God and to walk in the will of his Father. The betrayal, the detachment of troops, the arresting of Jesus uh, uh, so that they might condemn him to death was all coming together just as God said it would in his word. And so today's account, it picks up in verse 57 and 58 with the troops leading Jesus away from the Garden of Gethsemane and into a, a multitude, what would be a multitude of trials. Verse 57 says, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Although verse uh, 57 here in Matthew chapter 26 uh, tells us that the troops led Jesus away to Caiaphas, we know based upon John's gospel account that they first made a pit stop at the former, uh, at the former high priest Annas' house. Okay? John 18.13 tells us this information. Uh, and it also reminds us that Annas was the father-in-law of the current high priest, Caiaphas. Okay? And we won't go into the details of the workings of the high priest today. Uh, we've made mention of it before in our studies. And we've looked at both Annas and kind of when he started ruling and, and Caiaphas. And when, how that all came to be. We won't look at that uh, again today. But uh, just to note. Uh, while at Annas's house, Jesus was questioned 
uh, by Annas, and also he was struck by one of the officers after responding to uh, one of Annas' questions. Uh, And so uh, this beginning of the beating of Jesus Christ has already begun. We don't get word of it in Matthew, but we know in John 18 that he first went to Annas' house before going to Caiaphas's house. After Annas was done questioning Jesus, he was then sent to Caiaphas for further questioning. Okay, and, and we're not told where Annas or Caiaphas lived exactly. As you follow the accounts, it, and sometimes it's hard to, to reconcile the four gospel accounts. All four gospel accounts tell us about the trial, and uh, the events seem to be mixed up a little bit. Is he in the courtyard of Annas's house? Is he in the courtyard of uh, of Caiaphas's house, a little bit uncertain. Uh, and so as you read it, we're not really told where they lived. Uh, they may have lived very close uh, to, to each other. They were part of the same family. Uh, they served uh, in the same position as high priest. And so it wouldn't be far-fetched to imagine that they have uh, uh, may have been in very close proximity towards one another. In fact, it's even possible that they could have dwelt within the same property uh, in a different house. Uh, and so uh, that's very possible. Maybe it was all part of the, the, the courtyard, Annas' courtyard, Caiaphas' courtyard, was all part of one big lot, uh, property area, and different housing uh, on e- within it. Uh, we don't know for certain. Regardless, we read here in verse 57 that the scribes and elders were assembled together at the house of Caiaphas. The, the fact that these men were already assembled uh, expecting the arrival of Jesus shows to us that they were all in, uh, all in on and aware of the plan to have Judas betray Jesus and hand him over to them. Verse 58 speaks of Peter and what he was doing that night. After Jesus was seized and bound, 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 bound. Bound, thank you, bound, thank you, I heard it over here, bound uh, by the detachment of troops and officers. Verse 56 tells us that all the disciples forsook him and they fled. Okay? But here we see that Peter, he didn't flee far. Okay? In fact, it tells us that he followed the scene of events from a distance. He wanted to know what was happening, what would become of Jesus, and what the religious leaders had in store for his master. And as he followed the group, they entered into the courtyard of the high priest, and ultimately to the high priest's house. Now this would be private property. Uh, And so uh, Peter was able to find entrance into this courtyard of the high priest and sit among the servants of the high priest. Uh, Actually, John's Gospel, if you read John's Gospel, it tells us that there was another unnamed disciple, that uh, that disciple of the Lord, that knew the high priest, knew him well, that he was there gathered together with the other religious leaders uh, at that time. And it was this unnamed disciple that was able to talk to the servants of the high priest and get Peter access to this trial that would take place in the courtyard of the high priest's house. John 18.16 gives us that information, that uh, Peter was out on the, left on the outside. He wouldn't have been able to, to witness any of it. But because of this unnamed disciple, he was able to be granted access to part, well, not to partake in the trial, but to be able to witness and see what was going on. Now, many people through the years have speculated as to the identity of this unnamed disciple. Okay, some have suggested that it was John, uh, because the details of this event come from the Gospel of John. 
And John often when, uh, would refer to himself in the third person as the other disciple. And so it just says there was a, another disciple. And so people say, well, it must be John. Because when John talked about saying another disciple, it was oftentimes himself that he was referring to. I personally don't believe this disciple was John. Because uh, f- for the reason that, uh, a couple different reasons, but uh, most every time that John referred to himself in the third person uh, as the other disciple, he would also use the added line of whom Jesus loved. Uh, that's why we refer to John as the beloved disciple. Because every time he would say, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, Uh, that's when he would be referring to himself. Uh, But we don't see, uh, there's no such distinction used here in in John uh, 18, verse 16. He didn't say, and another disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And so every other time he did that. Uh, And so it makes me think it wasn't him. Also, because of what verse 56 tells us, which we already covered uh, last week, it would include John and the group of disciples that fled from the Lord and deserted him. This other disciple, it would seem, was someone that was well-known amongst the high priest. Okay? Someone that had enough pull as to, after entering the high priest courtyard, could double back on his own, speak to the servants at the door, and have enough say as to get Peter into the courtyard there on the high priest's private property. Okay? I think that this unnamed disciple was more than likely someone that was expected to be there that early, early morning before the sun rose. Okay? Someone that was uh, 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 an unknown disciple of Jesus, perhaps, that was part of the scribes or the priests or, or the elders. Uh, we do know that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they were secret disciples of the Lord that were members of the current religious leaders. Perhaps one of them or another like them was the disciple that granted access to Peter. And I, and I do think that it's much more likely to have been someone like Nicodemus or someone like Joseph of Arimathea uh, rather than Uh, one of the 12 disciples. It just doesn't make sense. As you see the unfolding of the trial, Peter's trying to hide. And and why would the other disciples feel so free to be uh, uh, walking to and from and and openly um, carting around his uh, influence in connection with the high priest? And so it doesn't make sense that it would be one of the 12 disciples. We can't be for certain. Uh, either way, we, uh, because the scriptures don't tell us uh, one way or the other, we can't be for sure. Any speculation as to the identity of the disciple is simply that. It's speculation. I know the speculation, but I think it's a, a strong, uh, strong case that it may be someone that was supposed to be there, uh, a member of the Sanhedrin, a member of the council, uh, someone who wasn't as open about his connection and relationship with Jesus Christ. Whoever this disciple was, he did get access for Peter to enter in so that he could see what would take place during this trial uh, of sorts. We'll call it a trial. Uh, And we'll read of it in in subsequent verses. But before we read these next verses, uh, 59 uh, through 61, I I wanted to point out something about Peter's behavior. And, And... I don't mean to purposely pick on Peter, but just, you know, it seems like he's uh, making some mistakes and some things are not so great. 
Uh, and so I've been pointing out a lot of things bad about it. But he's a great guy. God's going to use him incredibly, and God will restore him. But uh, looking here at Peter's behavior, Peter wanted to see what was going to happen to the Lord, but he also wanted to keep his distance from the Lord. He wanted to, to look on from a distance to, to see what would happen. And, and I, I, as I thought of that, I just thought, you know, how many of us, uh, if we're you know, um, truthful with ourselves, how many of us are, are guilty of doing the same thing? You know, looking on from, from a distance, uh, not getting too close and, and, and definitely not getting too involved, but simply just looking on from a distance to see what's going on, to see what's going to happen. Peter was scared to get too close. He didn't want to get too involved. He didn't want to be gathered up by the religious leaders and sit right next to Jesus and suffer the same fate as the, his Lord. You know, and in my years of serving in the church, uh, I've come across a number of people who do similarly. They, they don't want to get too involved. They, they, they don't want to get too close. They are, they're just content to just look on from a distance. Uh, they don't want to take the risk of going all in for the Lord. And, and I just want to say, don't be like that. Don't, don't be like that. Don't, don't be content just to look on from a distance okay? and, and, and never really get involved. I, I plug in. Get involved. Be used by the Lord to impact His kingdom. Be willing to take the risk of getting closer Peter, he, he wanted to keep his distance. He wanted to see, wanted to know what was going on, but he, he wanted to keep his distance as well. I think it's something we, we should learn from and look not to follow. Let's continue in our text here. Verse 59, it says, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. The scene we read of here is a trial meeting of the council. Okay, now when it says the council, uh, this is a, a reference to the Jewish uh, court system known as the Sanhedrin. Okay. The Sanhedrin, uh, we've talked about before, but you'll remember there's composed of 70 members in addition to the high priest. So 70 plus 1. Uh, the members were selected from the chief priest, uh, former high priest, elders, scribes. Uh, much like the U.S. government uh, uh, has Democrats and, and Republicans and even the Japanese government that has the Democratic Party of Japan and the Liberal Democratic Party, uh, there were two main groups of people within the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and the high priest, he would serve as part uh, or sort of like a president of the Sanhedrin. And he would have the power to call meetings and to call for decisions uh, from the group. The Sanhedrin, they, they dealt with all important matters, both civil and religious. Uh, and they would meet in a hall that was close by the temple there in Jerusalem. And, and it's interesting, although under the rule of Rome at this time, uh, Jerusalem was given permission to use this system to help govern themselves. And so they kind of allowed them to to govern and, and to use this Sanhedrin. Even though Rome oversaw it all, uh, they still allowed them to have some, 
some of their own power, uh, although under the rule there of Rome. They would be given the authority to judge and even levy discipline uh, upon people. They were even able to pronounce a, a sentence of death. They would not be able to carry out that pronouncement. Uh, and there was always a condition with that pronouncement or a state, uh, sentencing of death is that um, such a sentence would only be valid if it were confirmed by the Roman procurator, uh, who at this time is Pontius Pilate. Okay? And, and we'll get to, to him and, and, and his involvement in just a few weeks. And so they can uh, uh, sentence someone to death, but they couldn't follow it out, and they needed to get the approval of the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate. And we're going to see how that plays out. Many of you guys are familiar with the account. Okay? The members of this council, they sought after false testimony that could be used against Jesus that might be used to sentence him to death. You know, it's amazing to me to think that they knowingly and willingly sought to build a case against Jesus Christ that was built upon lies. This was a court that was given legal power to uphold the laws and to decipher truth. And here they are actively pursuing and promoting lies. And I'd say that it's unbelievable to say that or to think that something like that could happen. Uh, but sadly, I think that we've come to a place in time where those types of things don't shock us so much anymore. Uh, you know, government conspiracies or scandals or cover-ups, those seem to be more of the norm nowadays. We read about them all the now, uh, but back then, this was a big deal. Okay? This was a big deal. This big cover-up and this lot, this case that they're building upon lies. Even though they sought false testimony, verse sixty tells us that they found none. They found none, not because there wasn't enough people willing to throw Jesus under the bus. For verse sixty tells us that many people came forward as witnesses. They found none because. As Mark points out in his gospel to us, their testimonies did not agree. Okay, in Mark 15, or 14, verse 56. Okay, it was a requirement within Jewish law that a matter be established by more than one witness. Okay, at Deuteronomy 19.15 says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And so people were coming forth with all sorts of lies. There was all sorts of false witnesses that were coming and saying, yeah, he said this, and he did this, or he did that. Lies uh, that didn't agree with each other. Okay? Uh, people were making up stuff, but the Sanhedrin couldn't find any two stories that agreed. And so I, I, I just find it interesting, you know, like... As I was reading it, it just kind of like... I sat back for a second, I just thought to myself... Although they're seeking false testimony, lies, right? Uh, which is according to the ninth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 16, it's a sin. You know, you should not bear false witness against your neighbor. Uh, that's a sin. Okay, one of the Ten Commandments, you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, it is against the law. And yet they want to have the pretense of following the law by making sure that the lying testimonies agree. I just thought, man, that makes no sense to me at all. If you know the testimony is false, who cares if it agrees? You're already building you know, uh, your whole entire case on lies. Why hold to this 
uh, you got to have two that agree type of thing. Uh, you know, and they were so caught up in the appearance of following the law, not necessarily following the law, because we know they were lying, that they nearly had to let Jesus off the hook because they couldn't get two people to agree on an accusation that was deserving of death. And that was the key. It needed to be an accusation that was deserving of death. But at last, verse 60 reads, Two false witnesses came forward and said in verse 61, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. This accusation was something that fit the requirement of being a capital offense. Okay? Uh, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was a prophet that prophesied about the destruction of the house of the Lord and the city of Jerusalem. And the priests and prophets of that day, they proclaimed, This man deserves to die for making such a prophecy. Jeremiah 26 verse 11. And the book of Jeremiah actually goes on to share some, some sort of a case study to prove that this was a capital offense by using the example of King Jehoiakim, uh, who sought out a man that prophesied, uh, prophesied against this city. And actually the man sought refuge in Egypt after prophesying against the city. But King Jehoiakim sent men down into Egypt to capture him, bring him back to the king, and then the king executed this prophet with the sword for prophesying against the city. Jeremiah twenty six twenty three tells us about that. And so when they're talking about, is this, is this a, a capital offense to prophesy against the city? Uh, Jeremiah, they, they, they came up with this case study. Well, yeah, King Jehoiakim did it. And so, yes, this is a capital offense. Okay? I almost think of it as like a, a modern-day like bomb threat or something like that. You know, it's like, we're going to destroy this building. You know, then there's people, you know, hundreds of people that are inside it. You know, that would be a, a very bad thing to do, right? I don't think, it's not a capital offense uh, that I know of. Uh, but at that time, in that day, it was. Okay? Not only was it a capital offense, but it was finally something that two people came forward uh, to say together. Okay? And it's interesting side note here. Actually, Mark's gospel tells us that even these two witnesses didn't completely agree. In chapter 14, verse 59, uh, which should have disqualified their testimony, but the Sanhedrin ran with it anyways. Evidently, it was close enough. And so the Sanhedrin, they sought false testimony, and that's what they got. Okay? Jesus never said the words which he is accused of. Jesus said in the beginning of his ministry, back in John chapter 2, verse 19, this is what he really said. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's what he said. Jesus didn't say that he would destroy the temple of God. Okay? In fact, he was speaking about his body that the very men that are questioning him are about to destroy and the religious leaders knew that he was talking about his body. And we can prove it because of what they did, their own actions. Okay? For when they did crucify him and they put him to death, they went to Pilate and they asked that his tomb be made secure. Okay, they said to Pilate, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. 
So the last deception will be worse than the first. And so the religious leaders, they knew that he was talking about his body, that he would raise his body back up in three days, because they went to the pilot and said, we've got to guard the tomb, because this is what he said. They knew he wasn't talking about the temple. Okay? In fact, right after he said that, they, they kind of said, it took us 40 plus years to build this temple. And then the next verse tells us, but he was speaking about his body. The audacity that these men have to speak about deception is really unreal as they would go to Pilate and say, this deceiver and the deception will be worse than it was before. Their, their whole entire, everything they're living off of is deception here. The best thing that they could come up with was a distortion of a truth that Jesus shared at the beginning of his ministry some three years ago. They had to go way back. And and what they came up with wasn't even true of Jesus. And to me, that really is incredible. These people really had it out for Jesus. And they were so mad and upset about all the things that he was doing. But the only accusation they could come up with was a misrepresentation of something that he had said three years ago. And to me, as I look at that, I just think of what a remarkable testimony to the life and integrity of Jesus Christ. He lived a life that was above reproach. And you know what? He wants us to do the same. To to live a life that is above reproach. 1 Peter 3, verse 16 tells us of how we ought to have a good conduct in Christ that when others defame us as evildoers, it would bring shame upon them. If someone spoke evil about you, okay, that it would be shame upon them because everybody knows that your conduct is so good. Philippians exhorts us to be blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're to be a light. 1 Peter 2.15 says, It is the will of God. You know, a lot of people always ask, What's the will of God for my life? Here, let me tell you. The will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. It is God's will that we live lives that are honorable, that are above reproach that we wouldn't be easy targets for others to bring down with accusations of sinfulness and unfaithfulness. Christ left us an an amazing example that, you know what, none of us will be able to to completely follow. You know what, we all fall short. and, And from time to time we really blow it. But we ought to desire. We ought to have a passion in our life. To, to live such a life as an act of worship and a, to surrender to the Lord, to live a life that's above reproach. That when people talk about you, they can only say good things because if anybody said anything bad, you're going to be like, where's that coming from? Because I've never seen that before. Someone talks bad about you at work, and the other coworker should say, no way, that's not true. Okay? That's the life we ought to live. That's the life that Christ lived. They wanted desperately to nail him on something. They got to get something. They had to go back three years and misrepresent something, one sentence that he said. That was the best they could do. 
I know that it wouldn't take three years to go back and find <laughs> uh, something that you can bring accusation against me, but I, that doesn't mean that I shouldn't try. That, that doesn't mean that I shouldn't strive to live a life that is honorable before the Lord. Verse 62, we'll continue on. He says, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? Why, what is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas, the high priest, seems really perplexed by Jesus' silence. He wants to hear what Jesus has to say about the testimony and the accusations that have been brought against him. But Jesus kept silent. You know, and as I thought about that, I wonder why Jesus kept silent at this time. Why did, he, why did he do that? Perhaps because he knew that the testimony itself was false and that he wasn't even going to dignify it with a response. Perhaps because he knew that this entire trial was all a big sham and that it was all against the law. So many things that were going on contradicted the law of the day regarding trials and the practice and the procedures of the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council. Okay? A number of things. For one... Trials of this nature were only to be heard during the day. Okay? Criminal trials must begin and end in the daylight. Night trials were against the law. And yet here they are. They are before the sun has ri- even risen, they've gathered together and, and they are casting a uh, judgment upon this man, upon Jesus Christ. Also, according to Jewish law, only decisions made in the official meeting place were valid. This meeting at Caiaphas' house was an illegal meeting. Okay? They had a place next to the temple where they were supposed to meet and make all of their decisions. That was like the place. You've got to meet there. You can't just go, hey, we're going to have a secret meeting over at Caiaphas' house. Okay? That was illegal. Their law stated that criminal cases could not be tried during the Passover season. Actually, during any, during the, uh, any of the festivals, they couldn't have this type of criminal procedure, uh, proceeding. Okay? Uh, again, according to Jewish law, only an acquittal could be issued on the same day of, uh, as a trial. Okay? If you found someone to be innocent, then you can go ahead and, and wrap it up and say, yep, we, we're done with this case, let's move on to another one. But a guilty verdict had to wait one night to allow just feelings of, of mercy to, to rise, that you would come forth with a, a clear head to pronounce a, a verdict, discipline for the guilty. And so this immediate verdict was illegal. Okay? All evidence in a trial had to be guaranteed by two witnesses okay, who were separately examined and could not have contact with each other. Okay? They weren't allowed to uh, get together and collude with... Collude. Yeah, that's the right word, right? Collude with, the, with one another and, and come up with a story um, to, to try and uh, do in Jesus. And so uh, that was illegal that they came together. Uh, Jewish law also states that a false witness was punishable by death. Okay, that was one of the ways that they kept people from giving false witnesses. If you gave false witness and it was found out to be false, you would get the punishment that was intended for the person that you accused of something. That you said, oh, I saw him do this, and it's a punishable uh, capital offense. Well, if you found out to be a false witness, guess what? Capital offense is for you. 
And so they didn't have a lot of false witnesses going on because that was a very serious thing. And yet here we see nothing was done to the many. There was many false witnesses that came forward. The whole thing was just a charade. Ultimately, though, I believe that he kept silent to fulfill Scripture. I think maybe those other things had to do with it, but I think ultimately to fulfill Scripture. Isaiah 53, verse 7, speaks of the Messiah, speaks prophetically of Jesus when it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Again, we see Jesus completely submitted to fulfilling his Father's word. This prophecy of Isaiah that was uttered some 700 years ago was on that day fulfilled. 700 years ago from that time. Okay? 2,700 years ago for us. Okay? On that day, it was fulfilled. Caiaphas's perplexity, it turns towards... Uh, uh, t- Perplexity towards Jesus' silence seems to turn more towards anger as he places Jesus under oath by the living God to say whether or not he was the Christ, the Son of God. It would seem that Caiaphas knows that this flimsy accusation about destroying the temple wasn't going to stand, and so he cuts straight to the the matter at hand, the identity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ responds in verse 64, It is as you said. Jesus responded in the affirmative. He claimed that he was indeed the Christ, the Son of God. You know, it's amazing for uh, some reason there are people out there today that are trying to say that Jesus never claimed to be divine, that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. Okay? And, and those people are fools. Okay? They, they, they obviously haven't read the scriptures, specifically the gospel records. They obviously don't know anything at all about Christianity or history. The fact that Jesus claimed to be divine, the, the fact that he claimed to be the Son of God, was the very excuse that the religious leaders used for having him killed in the first place. And so for someone to come and say, Oh, you know, Jesus never really claimed to be God. Immediate, they just lose all credibility. It's like, are you serious? Absolutely, he claimed to be God. Absolutely, he claimed to be divine. Okay, There's no doubt about it. Jesus, he continued, though, not only did he say, Yes, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. He continued saying, Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Heaven. It, it's, it, it, it's as if Jesus said, what you say is true, but it's incomplete. Let me tell you more. Let me tell you more about who I am. Okay? I'm not just the Christ, the Son of God. Because Jesus did. He claimed His divine nature by agreeing with Caiaphas' question about Him being the Son of God. But Jesus also claimed His human nature in this declaration by referencing himself as the son of man jesus speaks of his ascension into heaven and his place at god's right hand and he also makes reference to his second coming on the clouds of heaven and so he says yeah you just think this but let me tell you it's all this okay it's even more i am god but i'm also man and i'm going to ascend to the father i'm going to be at his right hand and guess what i'm going to come again in the clouds 
And that was his proclamation. It wasn't just like, yeah, uh, what you said is right, but it's so much more. It's so much more. He was so much more than what they could even imagine. To them, Jesus was a problem. He was meddling with the status quo and the religious leader's place atop the hierarchy of society. To others, Jesus, he was just the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. Some say he uh, saw him as a a miracle worker. Others as a great teacher. Uh, Even a prophet, some thought he was. And, And let me ask you this question here. Who is Jesus to you? I know it's a question I've asked of you before, but it's a question that's and a very important question. Who is Jesus to you? Some say that he was just a guy that lived a couple thousand years ago. That he really didn't die upon the cross. And he actually married and had a family and all that kind of stuff. Okay? Others won't even give him that. Uh, they'll claim that he never even really existed. The stories were all just made up for people to have something to, to encourage them or help them. Something to uh, lead them uh, in living a, a right life. It's just a fable. Some, some see Jesus as a, as a get-out-of-hell-free card. Who do you say Jesus is? You know, Jesus asked this very question to his disciples once, and, and you guys remember if we were studying through Matthew chapter 16, Peter, he gave an incredible answer that was inspired by the Father. Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is one of the most important questions to ever ask yourself. And how you answer will determine your place in eternity. Jesus is real. It's not just some story we read about in a book. He was real. He He is real. He is God. He is man. He is all those things. And and He's at the right hand of the Father right now. And He said He's going to come back again. It's not just something that we hope for or we wish that this is true. It's true. This is real. And who you say Jesus is, is probably the most important question you can answer. Who is He to you? Jesus Christ is God. Okay? He's not something that we've, we've just made up to feel better. He's, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And He can be your Savior should you choose. Let's continue. He says, then at verse 65, it says, A high priest told He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard His blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Verse 67, Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? In response to Jesus' proclamation, the high priest tore his clothes. You know, the tearing of clothing uh, was an outward demonstration that was uh, often done to demonstrate just some inner anguish. Uh, And so oftentimes you read in uh, Old Testament kings and different people that would tear their clothes and rent their clothes when they'd hear just some horrible thing or they were just (laughs) stricken with grief. They would tear their clothes. Uh, Unfortunately for Caiaphas, though, 
Leviticus 21 verse 10 actually forbids the high priest from responding in such a manner. Uh, but I guess he didn't really care about following God's word anyways. He wasn't supposed to do that. Okay? He was, a, he was a, uh, a, um, supposed to be a representative of the Lord. And the Lord doesn't react in that type of manner. Caiaphas, he accused Jesus of speaking blasphemy. Had Jesus not been divine, okay, which is, we know that's not true, he was. But had he not been divine, then what he was saying would definitely be considered blasphemy. To make yourself out to be God when you are not was blasphemous, and it was punishable by death. Leviticus 24, verse 16, tells us that uh, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Caiaphas thinks he's struck gold. He is like, this is what we needed. He said it, and you all heard him, you know, and this is... This is so much better than that flimsy, he'll destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Okay? He's got him now, or at least he thinks he does. Okay? Caiaphas called for a verdict right then and there. Okay? He says, what do you guys think? You know, you heard it yourself. What do you think? Again, totally against the law, but he doesn't have following God at the forefront of his mind. All he is thinking is that the trap has been set. And how he can finally get rid of this man. And they answered, He is deserving of death. It's interesting to me. It kind of just hit me when I was reading it and I thought about that statement. Of all the people that have, have ever walked the earth, The only person that this statement would not be true for is Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? We all are deserving of death except Jesus Christ. You see, death is the wage that we earn for the sin that we've committed. That's what Romans 6.23 tells us. Yet Jesus was without sin. And since he had no sin, he earned no wages for sin. He is the only person to ever live that was not deserving of death. I found that amazing as I read that statement. He is deserving of death. You know what? He's the only one that's ever not deserving of death. You are deserving of death. I'm deserving of death. They were deserving of death. Jesus Christ was not deserving of death. And they began to spit upon the face of Jesus and to slap him and to punch him. They blindfolded him according to Mark chapter 14 verse 65 and they continued to brutally punch him and to mock him, asking for him to prophesy who it was that struck him. You know, that idea of a, of a blindfold, it's an important thing to note that I was reading. Uh, I'm not a boxer or anything like that, but I was reading up and they were how being blindfolded uh, and you're being beaten is much worse. It's much more painful than if you weren't blindfolded because your body has a natural reaction to go with a punch. If you're getting punched, your body will just naturally react and go with it. But if you don't see it coming, that's when it's going to hurt. You know, if you watch boxing, it's always the punch that... You know, they didn't see coming. That becomes the KO punch, right? And so 
being blindfolded, he would be taking this brutal beating. And last week, I, as I was considering this, last week, I was reminded of last week's study and how we noted how Jesus was, was full aware that he could at any time, at any time he could call down 12 legions of angels to come to his aid and to come to him to fight his battle. And yet here he does not call upon aid. He does not fight against them. He does not try to escape this vicious and brutal beating. Why? Because although he was undeserving of death, you were. And he wanted to pay the price for your sins and for my sins. Jesus allowed himself to be spat upon, slapped and punched, mocked and ridiculed and ultimately crucified all because of his great love for you. He loved you so much that he was willing to take the punishment for your sin. He wasn't deserving. All of us were deserving. All of us are deserving. Yet, he wasn't. The punishment you deserved, and, and he didn't. He took it. And he did it because he loves you. And I, I hope and pray that we all understand the great sacrifice that Jesus Christ gave for us. That we would know that truth intimately, and that we would know that truth personally of what he went through for us. I think sometimes they're just words on a page when we think about that. But imagine yourself in that place. I think men are, are prideful. I think all of us, but I think men, you know, I don't think I would stand by if someone's spitting in my face. Would you? Would you sit there and just let people use you as a punching bag? Mock you and ridicule you and just take it and not do anything at all about it? That's what he did. And furthermore, he, he, he laid down his life upon a cross for us. Today we get to commemorate that sacrifice of his body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed for us through the observance of communion. And so, uh, at this time, I'd like to go ahead and, and invite Nick and, and the worship team back up here to, to help lead our time of communion and, and worship. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to pass out the bread, and we're going to pass out uh, the cup. And then, uh, I want you to hold on to it. Okay? And then we're going to partake together as a, a family in Christ. And I want to encourage you, as the worship team is playing, to worship the Lord. And as you do, I, I want to, for us to consider some of the things that we've highlighted from today's text. That, that we can't be content with just looking on from, from a distance when it comes to our walk with the Lord. We don't need to be afraid of getting closer and, and plugging in and, and being used by the Lord. Jesus, He lived a life that was above reproach. In fact, it was a sinless life. And although we're not sinless, but rather very sinful, God still desires for us to live a life that is above reproach as well. 
we asked ourselves a, a very important question, one of the most important questions that demands an answer, who is Jesus to you? The answer to this question, it will determine the outcome of our eternal existence. And lastly, we were reminded of just the beginning of the pain and suffering that Jesus would endure for us to pay the penalty for our sin. He was not deserving of death, but you and I were. And, and He did it all because of His great love for us. And so I want to just consider those things as we're worshiping the Lord, as we pass out the elements. Uh, think about those things. Think about what the Lord might be teaching you or wanting to tell you this morning. I invite the ushers up to pass out the elements, and as they do, the bread and the cup. And uh, I'm going to come down, and, and Nick's going to just lead us in song. And as they do that, uh, once all the elements are passed out, I'll, I'll come back up and close this out. Looking at First Corinthians chapter 11. All right? Let's worship the Lord. Oh 
chapter 11 uh, Paul writes of, of that night uh, that Jesus was betrayed uh, that night that they celebrated the last supper together and he instituted uh, this act of communion uh, and in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23 it says for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we consider the bread and what it represents, it represents that body that was broken. When, it, when it's all said and done, they said that, that he was so beaten and so disfigured that he didn't even resemble the appearance of a man anymore that body that was broken for us and so when we partake of the body we, we we do so in remembrance of his body that was broken for us as he took the punishment for our sins what we were deserving for and so let's partake of the bread continued in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 11 he says in the same manner he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes and so the cup it represents its grape juice it's not wine uh, but the color it's significant okay uh, symbolic of the blood that was shed for us as he would hang upon the cross of Calvary and uh, he would sacrifice his life and give his life for us uh, they would pierce his side and water and blood would flow and, and obviously from the multiple beatings and the flogging that he took there would be blood all over the place uh, you know I'm not not necessarily recommend the passion movie it's a little grotesque but I think they they come close to representing of what that body may have looked like have you seen that movie but um, the blood it, it represents his new covenant uh, uh, of grace okay he, he's taking care of the penalty of our sin and and he's 
extended grace to us. And so when we take part of the, the, the cup, we're acknowledging that new covenant. It's all about grace because of what He's done, because of His blood that was poured out for us. And so, and I'm so very thankful of what He's done for us. No longer are we under the law, we are under grace. And that we can come to Him and find forgiveness. And we can find hope for eternity. So let's partake of the cup in remembrance of His blood that was shed for us. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for Your body and Your blood. Lord, we give thanks for the life that You lived. It was beyond reproach. It was a a sinless life. Father, we fall short every single day. Uh, It would be so easy to bring accusations against each and every one of us. But not you. We were all deserving of death, but you were not. And yet you, you died for us and took our place and paid for the penalty for our sins. And if we would just receive the gift of God, eternal life, the forgiveness of sins are are offered to us. And so, Father, I pray that everyone here this morning, Lord, that they have responded. Lord, that they have answered that question, who is Jesus? And that they've answered that question correctly. That you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But even more so than that, Lord, you're... You are God and you are man. Lord, you are are at the right hand of the Father interceding for us even at this very moment. And Lord, you're going to come again. And and as we partake of communion, it it says we do so until, until that day that you come. And so, Father, we pray, Maranatha, come soon. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Nick's gonna, and the worship team's gonna lead us in a, a, this final song again, and then afterwards, you guys are dismissed. Pray the Lord's blessings upon you, and should you need prayer or or anything, just want to talk, make myself available up here. Other than that, God bless you guys. All right, let's all stand together as we sing hungry. Hungry I come to you, for I know you satisfy. I am empty, but I know your love does not run dry. So I wait for you. So I
Bless us as we go out. Uh, may we be an aroma to those around us of who you are and of your love. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope to see you back here next week. You guys are dismissed.